It was an inauguration day like none other. On Wednesday morning, President Trump left the White House and, instead of making his next stop the inauguration, Trump became the first sitting president since 1869 to skip the swearing-in of his predecessor for anything other than a health reason. Trump's last presidential ride in the Marine One helicopter flew over the National Mall, where hundreds of thousands of flags stood in place of the crowds that would traditionally be gathered there had a global pandemic not claimed the lives of 400,000 Americans and transformed what's normally a day of celebration in D.C. into a socially distanced affair. Trump's next stop was to a nearby military base, where a crowd of his supporters cheered him on one last time as president. Trump wished his predecessor luck, but also hinted he's not going away. I will always fight for you. I will be watching. I will be listening. We love you. We will be back in some form. And with that, he got on Air Force One a final time and flew to his resort in Florida. Back in Washington, despite the pandemic and the recent siege at the Capitol changing how the inauguration looked, the day was still historic and filled with enough lofty moments to make it feel just a little bit normal, in a good way. It was a historic day for now Vice President Kamala Harris, who became the first female VP, as well as the first Black and South Asian woman to hold that job. I, Kamala Davy Harris, solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution. It was also a historic day for President Joe Biden, who's now the oldest person to ever hold America's highest office. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. And despite inheriting a lot of tough challenges that will be sure to complicate many of their ambitious plans, Harris and Biden tried to use the day to signal the beginning of a new era in which some of the divisions in the country can be repaired. Let's begin to listen to one another again, hear one another, see one another, show respect to one another. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. While the administration's record in accomplishing that is still unproven, the events in D.C. on Wednesday were a reminder that the democratic process in America can still stand strong. Sound pretty good? And give us some poetic goosebumps. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Welcome to Skim This. Okay, yeah, there were a lot of feels coming out of Washington this week but now it's time to roll up our sleeves and start making sense of how important policies are changing as the Trump era ends and the Biden era begins. Then we'll look at how the shadow of the Capitol attack on January 6th still hovered over the inauguration and how the Biden administration might be planning to go about implementing some of the lessons learned on that dark day. And finally, from Homeland Security to cybersecurity, we've got the latest installment of our How to Skim Your Life 2021 New Year's Challenge 
as we skim your passwords and talk to an expert about why putting a one and an exclamation mark at the end of your grade school AIM password probably isn't enough if you're trying to safeguard your retirement account. All right, let's do it. Over the last few weeks, 500 of you lovely people filled out a skim this listener survey. And one thing that came up was that if we had to change anything about the structure of the show, we could hit a few more headlines each episode. But since we're all about breaking down complicated stories and giving you the context on why they matter, our headlines are going to sound a little different from what you might hear on cable news. Think of it like shot chaser, or in this case, headline context. And since President Trump made a lot of moves in his final weeks, days, and hours that could have a lasting impact, what better time to cover some headlines than right now? So here we go. One big headline you may have seen in President Trump's final hours was about presidential pardons and commutations. Reminder, the U.S. Constitution grants the president the power to basically forgive people who have been convicted of a federal offense or to reduce someone's sentence. On Wednesday, just a few hours before he turned over the keys to the White House, Trump issued 73 pardons and 70 commutations. The most notable people on the list include former advisor Steve Bannon, who was charged with defrauding donors to build a private border wall, as well as Grammy Award-winning rapper Lil Wayne, who was charged with illegally possessing a firearm. For context, almost every past president has used their pardon power, but what sets Trump apart is his controversial history of pardoning those in his inner circle, including people indicted during the Mueller investigation. Though missing from Trump's final list of pardons were members of his family and himself, despite reports that an unprecedented self-pardon was on the table. So at least on this, Trump may not have used every presidential privilege available to him. Another topic that Trump tried to leave a legacy on was the environment, or we should say environmental deregulation. In his final weeks in office, Trump weakened several environmental protections and took a few specific steps, like cutting the protective habitat of an owl species facing extinction and approving construction of a highway through conservation land in Utah. For context, during Trump's four years in office, his administration reversed or rolled back over 100 environmental policies involving things like clean air practices, oil drilling, and wildlife protection. Some actions, like opening up protected lands in Alaska to oil drilling, could be short-lived, but others could take more time and energy to undo. So Biden will have his work cut out for him. And finally, a lot of eyes were on the Trump administration's final foreign policy moves, especially having to do with China, Yemen, and Cuba. First on China. This week, Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, announced that the U.S. was accusing China of committing both genocide and, quote, crimes against humanity against Uyghur Muslims, which China denies. Here's the context. The global community has been eyeing those alleged human rights violations in China for a while, and China doesn't like those accusations. So far, China's responded to Pompeo by sanctioning top Trump officials. But as for whether that frosty relationship will continue, Biden's Secretary of State picks said this week that he agreed with Trump's tougher approach, even if he disagreed with how Trump went about things. So at least on China, we can probably expect tensions to remain high, no matter who's in the White House. Next up, Yemen, where the Trump administration recently designated the Houthis, 
a rebel group backed by Iran as a foreign terrorist organization. Some context. This one is more controversial. The Houthis are fighting on one side of the ongoing war in Yemen, which is the world's largest humanitarian crisis. The Houthis control certain areas of Yemen, so foreign aid organizations, who are trying to help millions of people caught up in the war, have to cooperate with the group. But that foreign terrorist organization label could actually cause more problems, because it creates legal challenges for groups looking to do business with the Houthis, and that could create potential hurdles in getting aid where it's desperately needed. And last but not least, Cuba. This also has to do with a terrorism designation. Last week, the Trump administration redesignated Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, accusing Cuba of supporting acts of international terrorism because Cuba allegedly harbors terrorists within its borders. Why does this one matter? Some foreign affairs experts see this move as mostly symbolic, since a lot of restrictions on Cuba are already in place. But the move also complicates any plans Biden might have to follow in Obama's footsteps and improve relations with the island. While Biden could try to restart diplomatic relations, he'll now reportedly have to wait out a lengthy legal process just to get Cuba off the terror list. Meaning, even as a former president, Trump's moves could box in Biden's actions for years to come. But let's be honest. There's only so much a former president can do to get in the way of a new administration. And while Wednesday was a day for a lot of pomp and circumstance, it was also President Biden's first few hours on the job. He skipped new POTUS orientation and he pretty much got straight to work. Before the end of Inauguration Day, Biden signed 17 executive actions aimed at getting a jump on his agenda and reversing some of the work of his predecessor. So we wanted to take a few minutes to explain the four key areas where Biden's already making moves and what you should be watching out for in the weeks ahead. All right, first up is climate change. A cry for survival comes from planet itself. A cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. That was Biden in his inaugural address. Throughout his campaign, Biden criticized the Trump administration for its climate agenda. Reminder, when he was in office, Trump rolled back a lot of environmental protections. So on his first day, Biden said he's putting some of those protections back in place, starting with an executive order that revoked the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Quick refresher, that pipeline was supposed to run from Canada down to Nebraska and carry over 800,000 barrels of oil per day. Cue a lot of pushback from environmentalists. President Obama ended up vetoing the pipeline's construction, but then President Trump said it's back on. And now, several years into a Rachel and Ross worthy will they or won't they between the US government and Keystone XL, Biden is pulling the plug on that project. Also included in that executive order, a temporary ban on oil and gas companies leasing land in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is home to indigenous communities plus some endangered animals. Selling drilling leases there was one of Trump's last moves in office, so Biden didn't waste much time in shutting that back down. So that's what Biden's done for the climate right out of the gate. What can we expect in the long term? Likely a stronger push towards renewable energy and possibly even things like subsidies for people who buy electric cars. 
But with the Democrats having the smallest possible majority in the Senate, it's still TBD what legislation the Biden administration will actually be able to push through. Biden's next area of focus, COVID-19. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once in a century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. Trump's COVID response left a lot of things up to the states. But now, President Biden has promised for more of a federal response. Biden's first executive action institutes a 100-day national mask mandate on federal property and on planes, trains, and buses traveling between states. Beyond that, the president can't force states to mandate masks, but in a press briefing on Wednesday night, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Biden hopes to set an example from Washington. The steps we're all taking uh, to make sure that we are safe, he is safe, you are all safe. Uh, those include daily testing uh, when we're in the White House. It includes wearing N95 masks. I wore it out, of course, here today um, and will continue to do that. Um, it includes stringent rules about social distancing um, and abiding by that in the building. Uh, that keeps us safe, but we're also, the president has asked us to also be models to the American people, and that's vitally important to us as well. Biden's second COVID-related order was more focused on logistics, aka restructuring who in the federal government is responding to the pandemic. This move reorganizes the pandemic response team as well as creates new positions like an official response coordinator. Because even the federal government needs to update its seating chart occasionally. As for what we can expect in the coming weeks, the administration has promised that 100 million vaccine doses will be administered in Biden's first 100 days. If that sounds ambitious, a lot of people are saying it is. And the logistics of how the administration plans to do that are still being worked out. The other thing to look out for, another COVID relief package from Congress. Biden has outlined a proposal for a new stimulus bill, giving more direct payments to Americans and introducing a $15 minimum wage. Now it's up to Congress to debate the details of his plan. So watch this space. One more thing Biden tackled on day one, diplomacy. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. Not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. And we'll lead not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. We'll be a strong and trusted partner for peace, progress, and security. First, he got the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Agreement. 189 countries are currently signed on to that deal to reduce emissions and limit global temperature rise. But President Trump wasn't a fan, so he pulled the U.S. out of the deal. Now, Biden's saying, America has re-entered the chat. And another big diplomatic move Biden made yesterday was halting the withdrawal of the U.S. from the World Health Organization, which would have gone into effect in July. President Trump made his feelings clear last year, calling the WHO too, quote, China-centric. Now, Biden doesn't just want back in, but wants to strengthen the organization. 
As for future diplomatic moves, a lot of eyes will be on Iran. Specifically, whether Biden will try to re-enter the Obama-era Iran nuclear deal. As a reminder, that agreement limited Iran's uranium enrichment capabilities, aka what you need to make a nuclear weapon, in exchange for dropping economic sanctions against Iran. That was another deal Trump didn't like, but it's one the Biden administration could rejoin. So far, President Biden hasn't restarted talks, but it's one thing foreign policy experts will be looking out for. Finally, let's talk about Biden's action on immigration. First up, he signed a proclamation effective immediately, halting further funding or construction of the previous administration's border wall. Reminder, President Trump had declared a national emergency at the U.S.-Mexico border and directed billions in military funding to the construction of a border wall during his time in office. Now, Biden's reversing that emergency declaration and pausing more wall construction. Biden also signed a proclamation to revoke the so-called Muslim travel ban, the controversial Trump-era policy that restricted travel and visas for people from a number of Muslim-majority countries. Now, Biden has ordered the State Department to restart visa applications for those countries. So Biden hit the ground running on changing those immigration policies this week. As for long-term moves, Biden has already sent Congress a sweeping immigration reform bill that could eventually help up to 11 million undocumented immigrants earn citizenship over an eight-year period. But the success of that reform will require buy-in from a closely divided Congress. So keep an eye out for some big compromises and maybe some big fights on Capitol Hill. So what's the skim? Biden's schedule was back-to-back -back on Wednesday. And going forward, the White House wants to keep up that pace holding daily press briefings and continuing to unveil more policy moves in the president's first 100 days. But we should note, Team Biden is likely to encounter a lot of obstacles as they try to implement that agenda, like Congress. Not to mention, there are already a number of thorny policy issues the White House hasn't dealt with yet, like the Russian cyber attack and North Korea. The skim will be with you for every step of Biden's presidency. For daily updates, head on over to theskim.com. If you watched Wednesday's inauguration coverage, you probably noticed thousands of National Guard troops stationed all over D.C. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, parts of D.C. have kind of looked like a military base, culminating in an inauguration where soldiers and law enforcement appeared to outnumber people there for the ceremony. My name is Brian Gerber. I'm uh, an associate professor at Arizona State University. I direct a graduate program in emergency management and homeland security. Gerber says what we saw in D.C. this week was unusual, to put it mildly. Essentially, what we saw was the securing of essentially all the federal facilities in the area. We've not seen that in an inauguration before, and uh, we've never had an insurrection a couple of weeks ahead of an inauguration. Makes it a little bit atypical. So fingers crossed that so long as the U.S. Capitol isn't stormed in the days before the inauguration, the next time a president is sworn in, D.C. might go back to looking like it did every year before this one. But Gerber does think there could be some lasting security changes that we see as a result of what happened earlier this month. You're going to see from short-term tactical response is uh, heightened security measures, things like establishing perimeters around state capital grounds across the U.S. And that's entirely reasonable given the current environment and what happened on the 6th. I would also put it into a larger context. 
And that is we as a country haven't taken seriously domestic terrorism, domestic extremist movements. That might be starting to change. In a portion of his inauguration speech describing threats to the U.S., Biden acknowledged that terror threats are starting to pop up within America's borders. And he made history by specifically calling out white supremacy for the first time in an inaugural address. Now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. I think we're going to see, particularly at the federal level, efforts to address militia movements to try to limit their ability to wreak havoc on things like state legislatures, which just happen quite frequently. It's, it's not been a focus of national news coverage, but it, you know this has become a, a fairly routine occurrence where armed people will try to intimidate state legislative processes. This is already starting to happen, with states across the U.S. beefing up security in recent weeks. Longer term, Gerber thinks the fact that the organizers of the January 6th attack were able to openly discuss their plans online, seemingly without fear of arrest, is going to linger in the minds of lawmakers in D.C. After 9-11, Congress passed sweeping legislation called the Patriot Act to give law enforcement and security agencies greater powers to monitor communications and detect threats. There are constraints on what law enforcement can do to surveil citizens. And that's appropriate because you want to limit government authority. But the, the real debate moving forward is going to be whether or not current tools under the Patriot Act are sufficient to deal with domestic extremist groups, whether or not we need to have either amendments to the Patriot Act or any kind of additional legislation to permit greater authority to monitor and, and take action to prevent things like January 6th from happening again. This week, as part of our How to Skim Your Life 2021 New Year's Challenge, we're talking cybersecurity. Uh, it's saying the server went down. Does anybody know that password? Because otherwise we can't do any work. Oh, uh, try password. Nope. Try zero, 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 zero. No. Okay, now try zero, 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 one. We all know we're supposed to take passwords seriously. You know the drill. Lowercase letters, uppercase letters, numbers, and special characters. While this may feel like a game of extreme Scrabble, you don't need us to tell you that your passwords are important and may be the last line of defense between a hacker and your accounts. So to get the lowdown on password best practices, I called up an expert to help me out. Hi, I am Stephanie Schilling. AKA Cybersecurity Stephanie. When it comes to passwords, should you make them just completely unrelated to anything in your life? So if I had a password that was like folklore or evermore or Bridgerton and people knew that I love those things, would that probably be something I should stay away from? I would say personally, yes. I try not to, I try to choose something that's meaningful to me, but maybe not out there in the public sphere. Um, one of the things that we see with cyber criminals is that they can do research, right? We have people who this is their full-time job. If people want to attack you and go after you, they can. 
should you just, you know, put it as is letter for letter? Or I've seen people kind of mix things up with a one, two, three, four. What are your thoughts on that? I think that passwords are hard. None of us are are perfect, right? Um, and one of the reasons why passwords are so hard is because, dear Lord, every site is like, make it eight, like, like make it eight spaces long and add a special character and look at the night when it's like when it's midnight and point to the North Star and hope that maybe someone won't guess it. Like that's, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, when it comes to complexity, I prefer past phrases. I think one of the best things that you can do is to make your password long, to come up with, with a past phrase that makes sense to you because that length actually increases complexity. I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to password protection is, you know, trying to come up with something different for everything. Then I always get those warnings like, have you used this password before? You better not. And while it's not so much, you know, <laughs> A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four. What do you think is the best way to organize that information? I actually struggled with this myself and I've been a huge believer in password managers because I realized that I'm preaching all of these things about how we can keep ourselves safe, but looking at human behavior, I'm like, this is not how humans are built. Password reuse when we use our passwords across multiple services is such a huge issue because a lot of times we're like, I have my Netflix password, which is the same as my Hulu password, which is the same as the password for my 401k. Because what you don't want is you don't want someone to hack your Netflix account and you're like, okay, cool, whatever, it's Netflix. But then to be able to clean out your life savings either, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel so seen. How easy is it for hackers to really guess things? You know, are, do a lot of people really use their birthdays or their anniversaries or their dog's name that aren't me? Yes. Um, I mean, I think that the most common password out there is still like password one, two, three. It is really, really easy to take a best stab, even if I know very little about you and can look at what's out there uh, to crack your password. To be fair, it's usually P and then at sign, dollar, <laughs> dollar sign, W0RD. So, you know, I think it's pretty original. <laughs> What are some of your top tips, Your those easy to tackle things that our listeners can do to improve their cybersecurity, you know, starting today? One of the top ones that I really do feel like is a game changer because I had heard about password managers for a little while before I finally started using one. I am a convert. Nothing is completely void of risk, but it is better than other options that we have out there. Enable multi-factor authentication. It's just that second layer of protection, because if someone gets a hold of my password, heaven forbid, for any reason, um, I should be asked about a login saying, oh, hey, is this you trying to log into your bank account? And I can say, no, that's not me. And it'll block that person out. And I would also say type in the websites where you want to go. I know that's kind of a weird one, but at this point, I don't trust almost any links in my email. At this point, what I do is I open a new web browser and I type in the website myself so I know exactly where I'm going. So I know I have not been intercepted. So I know that there's not a cyber criminal on there who has cloned my bank website, took my password from me and then redirected me. And I'm like, oh, I guess it just didn't take. And so I feel like those are my top three right now. Our How to Skim Your Life New Year's challenge is kind of entering the home stretch. But if you head to the skim.com slash challenge, you can check out every task we've been covering since January 3rd. Once again, that's the skim.com slash challenge.
guys! You may have heard that we like to think about New Year's resolutions a bit differently than most. While we teach you how to skim your life, we also want to tell you about the Happiness Lab podcast, where Dr. Lori Santos asks, are we setting our New Year's goals the wrong way? Throughout January, Lori is talking to experts like psychologist Tara Brock and yogi Jessamine Stanley, who reveal that the secret to fulfilling your New Year's goals is to simply be nice. If being kinder to yourself needs to be bumped up on your priorities list, then listen to The Happiness Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear, and I'm your host, Justine Davey. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>